0: yeah i mean obviously this job it it kind of fell into my lap initially like it just it just happened and then all of a sudden i was living in europe and i didn't have the appreciation for what i had i didn't truly understand yeah the situation
1: i was in this podcast is brought to you by trivelo coaching where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Travelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Today's episode is a extremely special story, and we say that a lot on this podcast, and that's because we're lucky enough and we're very grateful to get to interview and speak to um, some very special athletes and very special humans with incredible stories, but unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending yet, and we want that to change. And the story of Jimmy Whelan as an athlete and as a professional cyclist is absolutely one you want to hear. He was picked up very quickly when he was very new to cycling after being a very talented runner um, by EF Education and spent three years in a professional contract before losing his contract after having a, um, a poor year with no racing uh, results uh, due to two horrific crashes where he was put out for a lot of the year. And unfortunately, that's the, the cruel nature of the sport is uh, even though he was crashed and injured, he didn't get a chance to keep proving himself and so lost his contract. But his motivation for being a professional cyclist and making that his life and making that his profession and his job has not waned. And he spent the last couple of years doing everything in his power to keep training like a professional athlete Uh, to get himself back onto a world tour team. But it hasn't happened yet. And he has some incredible results to his name, which started with winning the under-23 Tour of Flanders, his first European racing win, which actually got him his professional contract, as well as his best result being second at the Australian Road Nationals in 2022 last year, first at the Santos Festival of Cycling, which was a Tour Down Under event that happened in the COVID year of 2022, as well as an incredible performance in this year's uh, national road race, where he was a standout performer and one of the strongest riders on the day, where he was really trying to show his cards of why he should be picked up by a pro team. And this episode was uh, quite tough on Jimmy, to be honest. We He really let us uh, kind of ask him some pretty hard questions about his situation. And his story is awesome. Hearing about his training is awesome. He's currently living in Andorra. Um, and it's so cool to always hear about what specific training sessions athletes are doing, how they're approaching heat acclimatization and altitude acclimatization. But the key to his story is the fact that he is doing everything in his power to get a job again. And he's doing it all unemployed, earning no money, training like a professional cyclist, trying to make it back in. And dad, um, you just said to me before we started recording this intro, um, how hard it would be to sit there and have to answer questions about how hard his situation is, uh, yet yet he opened up fully and it's truly a motivating story.
2: Wow, George, yeah. Um... It's uh, one of the the better podcasts that we've ever had, and uh, why is that? Well, I've never had someone so openly be vulnerable um, because that's the situation he's in. He he's basically unemployed. He wants to be a, a professional bike rider, and he has been a professional bike rider, but he's in a, in limbo, and and it's a really hard situation because he has no way of proving himself again. Because unless you go to a bike race and win it, then no one's going to see or hear from you ever again. So, so this is a really hard situation to be in. And, and the, the good thing is his mindset is in fantastic condition. Um, He's also a very talented bike rider. Anybody who can win the Tour of Flanders and win the Australian under-23 road title and come second in the open national road title has talent, and that's not in dispute here. We we know he's talented. He's super talented. Um, What is the problem is that it's just – circumstances have prevailed against him to to actually be able to do the thing he loves the most, which is ride his bike um, in a competitive situation. He loves riding his bike full stop, but he loves also racing his bike. And this is a story of a guy, and we had a really great interview with Lockie Morton not long ago, um, ironically, from the same EF education team. And, um, and they're two vastly different stories. Um, and And Jimmy wants to be a professional competitive racer. Um, and he, he knows the, the, why he's doing it and the and the reasons why he's sticking it out when he doesn't have a contract, he's still training his backside off to make sure that if an opportunity arises, he'll be ready and able to slot straight into any race that any sports director or world tour team um, has available to him. So it's a, an example of resilience, it's an, it's an example of um, vulnerability. It's an example of consistency. It's an example of persistence. He's showing all these characteristics that that I would love to have um, if I was, you know, going into the trenches, as they say, um, against the opposition. Um, he has these in spades, and he has the talent. So I'm hoping it's only a matter of time before um, things open up for him, and he ends up getting. Uh, the contract that he so so desperately wants, and so he can, you know, spend the next five, ten years being the professional bike rider that he wants to be. And I now know he appreciates. Um, everything he had before and as we've said many times you know you only you only appreciate things once it's taken away from you and and that could not be more obvious in this situation and and he's not um a sad sack uh, looking for sympathy that's not what he's doing he's just so determined to put himself out there to uh to get an opportunity again to to do the thing that he loves and i hope everybody enjoys this because it was one of the better podcasts that we've ever done
1: the similarities between uh, him and Lockie Morton are, are striking even though it's kind of two different situations where Lockie was trying to get away from road cycling a little bit and um, Jimmy's trying to get into road cycling but their mindsets are so similar in that they're, they're both trying to do what they love and absolutely love that about it. So, it's hard to articulate um, exactly why this story is so motivating and so captivating um, we'll just have to let you listen to the episode and really take in everything you're saying. It's another long one uh, but it's worth every second and so and i'm sure once you hear it you'll feel the same way about jimmy and you'll be just as big fans as we are and uh, you'll be screaming his name to everyone uh, to, to back him and back another australian cyclist to to get on the world tour circuit so without further ado here is the episode with jimmy Whelan. jimmy wheelan Thank you so much for jumping onto the podcast. Big welcome to you. Uh, the first question we like to ask is, "What training session did you do today?"
0: Well, it's so it's six pm for you guys. It's eight am for <laughs> for me. So the only session I've done is I've had a shower and I've gotten out of bed. Um, yeah. So
1: I did know that I was on autopilot. Give us the QC <laughs> sessions the last twenty four hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yesterday I did five and a half hours. Uh, I'm in Andorra at the moment, so I did five and a half hours of uh healy high zone two climbing um nothing crazy but up here at the altitude it's uh five and a half hours at any zone is is challenging so yeah five and a half hours yesterday uh did the sauna in the afternoon and then i have a rest day today so just an easy two hours what's the uh elevation that you're living at so i'm currently at nineteen hundred and ninety eight meters which is a bit disappointing i wish i was another two meters up the hill but um yeah uh, i'm at more or less two thousand meters um and yeah it's a it's a good place to train it's beautiful i'm in the pyrenees here
1: uh So we want to dive into your background and and how you've gotten here because your journey as a cyclist has been a little bit different you came into cycling quite late and you had some rapid progression but you were a runner before that and we're really interested in that side of things because most runners uh get on the bike and absolutely hate it and they're no good at it so tell us a little bit about your uh, background as a runner first and how that developed into uh, you becoming a professional cyclist
0: yeah uh, as you said i was a runner um through my school years, so uh, it was kind of my identity throughout school. Uh, throughout primary school, I played uh, soccer and football and all, all the other sports. And then throughout high school, I kind of did running more or less full time. Um, and yeah, I, my my favorite event was probably the fifteen hundred. Um, uh, the peak of my athletic career probably came at about the Zadarpec under twenty three thousand meters, um, which I'm sure probably some of the listeners would know um and yeah i finished fourth in that event um i think i ran eight sixteen for 3k um yeah and uh yeah i was a runner still until the first year uni and then i went across onto the bike um following a, a bit of an injury and um yeah, I thought it was the end of the world at the time that my running career was coming to an end, but it turned out it was uh, a bit of a blessing in disguise. So, yeah, now I'm a full-time cyclist.
2: What was the injury that uh, that dragged you off the track and onto the bike?
0: Yeah, so I 2015 New Year's um, up in Falls Creek, I basically uh, trained too much and didn't recover enough, and then went straight down to a track session down in Melbourne and, um, tore a bit of my Achilles. Um, and it wasn't, uh, it definitely wasn't a career ending, uh, injury. Uh, but at the time it was just really difficult to put days together. Um, and yeah, uh, I then went across onto the bike for some cross training and then I actually really enjoyed riding and I thought, well, uh, yeah, why not give it a go? Um, I was struggling with injuries before that too. So, I was just really having a bad run with running and and you know what running is like it's savage it's uh i was getting all these small niggles and i just couldn't put the train together to become the athlete i wanted to be
2: um yeah is is that a bit contrasting now because on the bike you really can Train a lot more than you can as a runner, and I'm being quite general generalizing here. But if you train like you do as a bike rider and you are a runner, the risk is so much greater of breaking down and actually not being able to maintain that consistency, which is, I think, what you love so much about the bike compared to. I mean, you still obviously would love to be able to run, I imagine. But is that is that something that you you would see straight away the difference between the two?
0: Yeah, it's a huge difference in the training like a pretty standard ride now is 5 hours for me and that's just it almost feels like a maintenance day in a way um so yeah I, I definitely do miss that about running that uh it was a lot more time efficient um but yeah it is it is something that uh i'm lucky to have all day every day is still trained so riding my bike and doing pro hours is is a luxury and it's and it's an amazing thing about cycling is that you can do yeah Five hours 25 30 hour week back to back and uh yeah I, my achilles is still fine so this is nice yeah
1: how long was that time frame between once you started riding as a bit of cross training to the point where you were basically riding full-time and deciding to give cycling a big crack
0: yeah uh so at the end of 2015 and to the start of 2016 i kind of had a year where i was trying to quote unquote, find myself, I guess. Um, I went to Europe with a mate for three months, um, where I definitely was not a professional athlete in any way. Um, and I came back from Europe and I, I, I wanted to sort myself out of it. I didn't quite feel myself. So, um, that's when I started to, to cross train, um, on the bike. Uh, and then, yeah, basically the start of 2016, uh, I rode 20 plus hours a week. Uh, for the whole year Um, and then raced domestically in 2017 Um, and then raced over started racing overseas in 2018 so it was a really fast
2: progression um crazy fast actually Uh, yeah take take us back to when you when you hung up the spikes and 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 thought that uh, i'm going to give the cross training a little bit of a go was there a point where you were going to go back to running once the achilles had healed and you just you, you had enough of the bike and and running was going to be your thing or what, how, how did that change what happened
0: yeah i mean uh yeah as i said 2015 i wasn't trying to be an athlete in any way um i didn't really have ambitions to be the runner or a cyclist but then that changed in 2016 um and i was still putting together 20 hour weeks on the bike and i was also still running a lot so i didn't really know what i was doing i was yeah, doing twenty plus hours on the bike and then still running seventy, eighty k's a week, um, and yeah, I, I was that was probably the closest I was to a triathlete.
2: Um, um, <laughs> yeah, I to <was> ask <laughs> <laughs> this
0: Yeah, I don't know. I've never really given it a proper try, um, <laughs> but that, that's that's a question I can answer later in my life, maybe. Um, never say never. Uh, I basically realized that I could make something of cycling when I was doing the criteriums in Melbourne. Um, I'm sure you guys know the Hawthorne Criterium and the Glenvale Criterium. And then I started doing the the group rides, the North Road Ride in the morning, Wednesday morning long. Um, you guys in Melbourne, so I guess you kind of know this lingo. Um, yep. And that's when I really fell in love with the bike. And, uh, yeah, it was completely different sport to running. Um, I really missed my my running friends, uh, and I missed doing fast K reps around the track. But other than that, um, yeah, I, I had a strong passion for cycling and that's when I just said, okay, start of 2016, let's go all in. And then I guess my first big result was, um, the under 23 nationals in 2017. And then, and then the following year, I uh, know a few months later after that, um, yeah. Uh winning my first European bike race, which then accelerated uh my development process and two weeks later I had a pro contract with EF pro cycling. Um
2: yeah. Let's not let's not skim over the first European race you won. It's one of the one of the big races and um just, just take us through that. And, and obviously, it's coming up in two weeks' time, that exact race. Um, for those who, who don't know, the Tour of Flanders, obviously, is, is one of the big, the big um, spring classic races, and, and you've won the under-23 version of that. Um, how, how special was that? And how, how, how did uh, – it's changed your life, clearly, that, that victory. So take us through that.
0: Yeah, at the time um, when I won that race, I had no idea that, what it meant. Um, I was still so new to the sport that I I was obviously really fit and still training hard and and was really ambitious. But I didn't realise that winning that race would give me a professional contract and change my life so much. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I did the Australian Nationals and then was able to make the selection for the Australian team. Um, And I actually copped a a bit of criticism from uh, a few of my uh, cycling mates and also the cycling team at the time because I – decided to do that race instead of doing the Tour of Thailand with the team um uh in in theory I'm a climber and I was going to the Tour of Flanders and uh it was a bit of a cost to get there etc um and in the end it was a good decision um and yeah I mean I was uh staying with Cyrus Monk uh another uh Victorian boy who's now on Q36.5 we were uh, yeah, we flew all the way to Europe just for that one race. So we stayed, uh, in Oudenard, which is the start finish location for the race. Reconned it for two weeks and then we did the bike race. Cyrus finished in top 10 and I won it. And then we flew back to Melbourne and my, my life would never be the same again. So, <laughs> um,
1: what was the thought behind that decision? Like Not to go with the team and decide to do Flanders when you didn't know much about it?
0: Well, the way, I, the way I looked at it is. uh, i was really fit at the time and so was Cyrus, and it made sense to go to an early season european bike race where perhaps all the other boys were still in the pre-season mode and the the weather had been really bad uh in europe leading up to that race so we kind of knew that if we bought the the fitness from the australian summer across against a bunch of european lads that we might actually have a chance um, all we need to do is study the course and we could run a drum um, and yeah, uh, the our drop back development team gave us a chance to take this opportunity, which we we're really grateful for. Um, and yeah, it pulled
2: it worked out. Um, take take us through actually you you won solo, and take us through how that how that panned out for you, just if you can. Yeah, so the under twenty three race um, for
0: this year's edition was actually quite a hilly finishing circuit so i knew that if i could get to the, the finishing circuit which is about 45 kilometers four laps of a circuit that had four climbs on it um more or less a minute and a half long um and which actually suits me really well at the time i trained uh physiologically for these for this type of race um and yeah I knew uh with the nature of you know, the 23 racing it there's no real team structure that if I could get to that finishing circuit and I could attack solo then that was my chance to try and win the bike race and that's what happened um there was maybe 50 guys coming into the circuit and there was a lot of cat and mousing politics all these things um and yeah I just attacked over the top of one of the Bergs and um the only thing that went with me was the the camera motorbike so um yeah yeah
1: do you know which burger was specifically for our spring classics enthusiasts there was the the, Wolven, the,
0: the Wolvenberg, uh over the top of that one i can't even i, I can't actually remember the exact uh these the other three climbs but um
2: yeah the, the finish was in ordnart so you you would have done the paderberg and the Coppenberg and the Quarremont, i imagine yes yeah yeah yes yeah, yeah.
0: uh so it's pretty cool it was pretty surreal just as an aussie to be on those climbs uh yeah in a bike race um i mean at the time i if there was any person that didn't understand the significance of that race in that in that out of all those guys <laughs> in that race it was probably me um uh, yeah <laughs>
1: That's awesome. That's such a cool part of the story. Yeah. One one thing about your um your rapid rise into world tour cycling is how little time you had to um figure out figure out yourself on the bike and figure out racecraft and figure out positioning and cornering and descending uh, and especially going to a race with such crazy cobbles. How did you find going to Europe and it's it's crazy riding uh, through that terrain with such little experience? You've basically been riding for a couple of years by then. Uh, how did you find that going over there, and then suddenly thrown into some absolutely intense bunch riding in some you know, crazy and courses?
0: Yeah, I mean, as I said, my progression from runner to domestic cyclist was pretty quick, let alone from domestic cyclist to world tour pro. Um, I mean, if I if I actually look at it, it's probably one of the fastest, if not the fastest, progression. Um, like a one f- funny factor is uh I turned uh, I got a pro contract before I ever grabbed a feedback from the side of the road which is just bizarre um and yeah at the time I I thought it was like absolutely amazing and but I I didn't realize how unqualified I was from a technical and skill perspective and even just uh, uh, tactical as well um uh yeah I mean learning the craft in australia uh uh, road cycling that is is it's you can learn quite fast but the craft in europe is completely different um and it's horribly dangerous if you don't know what you're setting yourself up for and yeah um so the biggest thing is yeah just the bunch craft um and you're racing against guys where this just comes natural they've been racing since they were 10 years old and um yeah so yeah at the time uh ignorance was a bliss if I had have signed that contract knowing what I w- was signing up for and what I didn't know um then I would have been uh yeah quite uh quite nervous about the three years coming up but um it was a bit of a sink or swim situation I, I had my first pro year uh, at EF where I got over 60 race days in all different types of races and I was really able to knuckle down and learn what this European bike racing thing was, and um, yeah, I can confidently say that I understand the sport now. Um, <laughs> and but at, but at the time, I I certainly didn't.
2: Um, yeah. Was uh, was there anybody who took you under their wing once you signed that contract and acted almost like a mentor? And the, the, Jonathan Vauters is was the the head of uh, EF at that stage. Is that correct?
0: yeah exactly so he still is the uh the big boss at EF um he runs the show there and and yeah they put some resources into uh yeah I mean firstly I don't think they realized how new I was um a lot of the directors I think it's safe to assume that if someone's signing a world tour contract they would assume that they would know the basics of bike racing and et cetera and just skim straight over that but um uh yeah a few of the directors in the team just quickly realized that yeah this guy's so new which is exciting uh uh but also we need to teach him Uh, and also uh it was also it's also important for me because I was learning everything new and you learn habits and you create habits straight away so it was important to create those habits in a good way um yeah because it just becomes routine then um But, yeah, like for example, the team got me a descending coach where I had one-on-one sessions, um, three sessions in Girona uh, in Spain uh, where I was riding around in a car park, learning the limit of the bikes, um, my falling off almost, just learning the limit of the tyre, which which was a lot more than I thought it would. And this really helped my descending, for example, um, because in Australia I'd never raced down a descent um it's quite quite rare in in the australian situation to be racing down a 12 kilometer berg with 150 other riders so and if you don't know how to do it uh, in a situation like that it's actually very dangerous um uh so yeah we did that and then also have my personal director who's actually who actually lives in melbourne over the australian summer tom southern um he's from the uk from bristol um and he's a director on ef and He's been a mentor of mine and and he really uh, was able to communicate with the team just how new I was and was able to expose this to the team and say, hey, this guy needs this, this, this. Um, And if I go to a race, he'll tell the director of that team that I'm so new. Um, And it was also important for me to communicate that with with riders within the team. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, the expectation was they realised this, but they also expected me to learn pretty quick too, um, which – I was able to, so,
2: yeah. How did you feel that you went in those early days? Uh, Did you feel like you you came up to speed very quickly and did the other riders in your team um, kind of respect your ability Uh, over your lack of race experience? Yeah. um,
0: I think a lot of riders didn't realize how new I was. So, as I said... uh, I just had to learn fast Um, and I did learn really quick. So within a a few months of racing in Europe, I was able to do everything that was required of me as a supporting rider. Um, So the biggest shock was the UAE Tour coming across from Australia and then riding in my first ever crosswind race. Um, And there's no better example of high bunch stress than the UAE Tour because everyone is so close together um and for me this was the most difficult thing to relax and to just learn the craft it was when you're coming into a sprint and you need to be when yeah you have 150 guys in a in a small four by four meter space it's pretty crazy um and just having handlebars bump against you at the time that was so foreign to me but uh i had seven days to for the first few days to yeah uh be super uncomfortable. And then the next few days be more comfortable and in the last few days just have it be a natural thing. Um, so that was really good.
1: Oh, I was going to say, you're, you're really seriously thrown in the deep end when you said sink or swing before. It was, it was the perfect analogy because you just suddenly thrown into these massive tours. You, you said you did 60 races across that first year. It must have been a whirlwind the first two years of you just learning, training, getting thrown into these situations. Uh, how do you see that period now? Is it is it Was it just a whirlwind of you just... Just um
0: seeing how what you could do. Yeah, yeah. Looking back at it, um, it's pretty like I'm actually super impressed with how I managed it. At the time, I just kind of rode the wave. Um, didn't really stress, just yeah, just just I just put myself in situations and just didn't see how I reacted and I reacted really well. Um and yeah, looking back at it, um, it's crazy what I didn't know. Um, but then all you need to do is just be put in a situation, observe the people around you, copy them, and then have that be your behavior. So, yeah, if you can learn from others and your attention to detail is high and you're able to uh, look at yourself critically and be aware of what you're doing, then you can learn pretty fast.
2: Um, And that's with anything, that's bike riding or, yeah. At what point did you start to think, okay, I'm feeling a lot more comfortable, I've, I've got some ability, and and clearly they selected you on ability because you know your performance in, in that one race and your and your your power numbers and we'll, we might talk about that in a minute um, are you know at, at elite level like the rest of the, uh, the the pro peloton so you deserve to be there um, at what but what point could you start to concentrate on can I now start to everything I've learned in this such a short time. How can I start winning some bike races to prove myself to to the team that I'm in? At what point did that start to become foremost in your mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean the that idea was was not a goal in my first year pro. It was uh, to to be as resilient as possible, uh, to be as healthy as possible, and to make sure that I could go to as, as many bike races as possible and do my job. Um, so my personal ambitions as an athlete were secondary uh and um I still wanted to do well obviously um but just to do my job for another rider was an incredibly high task already. Um and then I came into the second year uh and obviously COVID happened unfortunately. Um the team uh decided for me not to do uh the nationals um and to prioritize the early season European racing which was which was fine. Um and yeah, uh unfortunately we I didn't race until more or less August and once uh yeah, once the pandemic kind of opened up again and bike racing became a thing. Um yeah.
1: Was that was that uh one of your first races back might have been the Giro. is that right? In twenty twenty?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I only did two races in twenty twenty. Um so I did the tour of Poland uh and the Giro. Um and yeah, so that's a week long world tour stage race, uh tour of Poland, uh, which is one of the hardest races on the calendar, especially after everyone's been stuck indoors, everyone's rearing to race their bike. Um and yeah. Uh then I did my first grand tour, which was absolutely amazing. Um uh, I was happy with my yeah, I mean in my as as you were saying before, they my role as a rider was evolving so i was no longer just doing the domestic work um and i started to have some personal pressure from myself and from the team to start performing um and yeah in tour of poland i was looking after nielsen pallets for the gc uh, and i had a few strong rides where i was in the in the break uh and yeah i was happy with the form finished top 20 on gc which doesn't seem like much but. um personally uh I was really proud of that result um and, and it was just a reflection of me starting to piece together obviously the technical skills and the racing craft that I had to put together in my first year and then also the physiological demands of racing so if you can put those two together then you can start thinking about uh yeah GC stuff um and that's where I was able to gain my first selection uh in a Grand Tour at the Giro which was the highlight of my cycling career so far was absolutely incredible.
1: Anyone that knows cycling knows a top twenty result in a tour like Tour of Poland is incredible, and then obviously to this that just uh, defines, I think your your rapid progression. We keep using that word, but it is just extreme to go from getting a pro contract to a Grand Tour in that short amount of time. Talk us through the Giro. One that you just said, one of the best experiences, or the best experience of your career, um, getting to ride a Grand Tour, trying to put everything together. How was it?
0: Uh, yeah it was a really hectic three weeks well, three and a half weeks um it was in October which is obviously different to the normal time of year in May um so it was quite cold um and yeah just given the the fact that yeah COVID happened and there was no bike racing for half a year uh it was really intense racing um and Yeah, which doesn't matter if it was or if there was COVID or wasn't COVID, it was going to be intense racing regardless. But uh, the biggest question for me was to see if I could handle the fatigue and the load of back-to-back 300 TSS days um, and just see if my body would, uh, yeah, adapt to it it, uh, or whether it would crumble and I'd get to Milan absolutely fizzed and... Wanting to take three months off the bike. But uh, my training would suggest that my resistance fatigue was super high. Um, so I was actually excited to see if I could stay healthy without crashing, all these things, stay relaxed, don't not get too stressed in the first week, that maybe a chance to chase a stage in the second or third week was quite viable. Um, and, yeah, I didn't quite have that opportunity. Um, and, yeah, I still got through it our main objective well my main objective was to help out Ruben guerrero who won the KOM jersey um so there was a few times during that race where Ruben might uh miss the breakaway and then uh this would threaten him losing the the KOM jersey so I'd have to chase chase the breakaway at the front uh and yeah people weren't too happy uh when I would do that because the race was formed and then we would open up the race again um <laughs> so yeah uh that was my yeah main achievement um and even just just getting to milan to be honest um was an achievement Mm -hmm.
1: itself just finishing yeah
0: and then uh and then yeah a week after i spent two weeks in a hotel in australia
2: (laughs) just (laughs) yeah crazy Um it is, and yeah, that would have been a proud, a proud experience for you. To, I'm interested in in uh, what was the team's reaction at the end. You know, you were a contributor to getting the 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 KOM jersey, and 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 secondly, how how did you prepare for your body to absorb that load day after day after day? What what specific things do you think contributed you for you to be able to to actually get through that as your first Grand Tour?
0: yeah so uh before the tour of poland which was closely followed by the duo i did two really big uh, altitude blocks in andorra so i did three weeks up at altitude and a week of rest down at sea level and then another three and a half weeks at altitude. Uh, more or less averaging 30 hours a week on the bike um, i think my biggest week was 36 hours on the bike um, and just accumulating that fatigue Uh, where I do, yeah, big four-day blocks, five, six hours, lots of climbing uh, and essentially simulating the load of the gyro and seeing if my body could handle it. And I was at altitude. Um, And so I guess from a physiological perspective, this is what I was uh, doing to my body to make sure that I could uh, try and yeah, uh, cope with doing my first Grand Tour, which I was able to do.
2: In those in those sessions, where you you said uh, you're doing four days, and then you were you having some recovery? What was happening in those four days? Were they all similar, um, just just trying to get out there and do four to six hours each day, or did you have some areas where you would maybe do a ten minute effort here, or or have a little crack for twenty minutes here or there? What take us through what that looked like?
0: Yeah, so with my coach uh, Nathan Brown, uh, Nate Brown. Um, He's an American and and an in-house coach at EF Pro Cycling and still is a a coach at EF Pro Cycling. He would do personalised programmes for all his athletes. So uh, the training would look different between different athletes within the team. And and for me, what worked really well was three or four-day blocks where I would have structure in there, but the structure was always at the front of the blocks. And then I would have general endurance at the back end. So I'd make sure that I'm always fresh to do the work. So I'd have, for example, uh, high torque work. So low cadence stuff, um, classic would just be six by eight minutes at 50 cadence, uh, 340 Watts, for example. Um, and maybe in between, the and the rest in between those, I'll be doing high cadence um, and then also some some zone three climbing maybe sometimes zone four getting close to threshold but nothing really too hard Um, it was actually when i look back at it it's actually quite easy training and i think that's because the amount of load i was doing and then also the altitude i find that uh, if i start doing the high yeah like the vo2 work and even into threshold that it starts eating into my reserves and then i actually can't adapt and absorb the work at altitude i end up getting too fatigued um. So yeah, I think that answers that.
1: It's really, it really is awesome insight. It's the stuff we absolutely love finding out on this podcast. Um, and so I want to keep going with that. So there, that's an example of some of the hard days, and then those back end endurance days. uh How long are you going, and are you really specific with what zone you're in? So you're trying to stay, you know, below that first lactate threshold, staying in zone one and two. And is that is that really strict, or do you have a bit of free range just to see how you how you're feeling on those rides? Give us some example of the volume and intensity there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the big days that would kind of round off a four three-day block, it would depend on how fatigued I am as to what I was doing. Um, My coach would put in a few, say, for example, three times 10 minutes at uh, 340 watts. So nothing crazy. Like my threshold at the time was around 380, 390. So more than manageable. Um, But given the context, uh maybe i was quite tired and maybe i could do the session but i actually wanted to prioritize my next block and i'll just do endurance so uh, a lot of time on the climbs just 250 watts Uh, i'll do cadence work down the climbs too um which is something that not many people talk about because here in andorra you can spend all day every day just riding 20k an hour 15k an hour and then you freewheel the descents and you've actually done no work at race pace um so you lose that uh kind of zap and that kind of uh yeah i mean you guys know what it's like when you when you're going 45k an hour you need to be efficient and uh with your form and your cadence so yeah obviously you don't get that riding to 15k an hour uh up a berg so
1: yeah Yes, your main principle, Dad, is is not letting any athlete freewheel downhill. It's kind of your absolute go to rule.
2: But it is interesting um, that a lot of the riding around the hills that you could end up just riding low gear, and then if you ride too hard on a lot of the climbs, you are going to freewheel to recover. And and it's so spot on for the for all the listeners out there. It is really important to, in a six hour ride. You could actually freewheel for for an hour. If, if you ride a lot of the climbs too hard and, and keeping the pressure on the pedals is one of the things that, you know, we, we're really adamant that, uh, you know, just stop the freewheeling as much as possible, even if you're just rolling your legs over on a climb that you can, you're pedaling can't keep up with the, the resistance. Um, is that something that you did a lot of the high cadence stuff and, and, and made sure that because you're in, in Andorra with so much climbing that you were keeping your, your legs, you know, a little bit fresher?
0: Yeah, exactly, um, and I think uh, yeah, just from a stimulus perspective, it's good for your legs. As I was saying, like uh, riding up the climbs, you end up riding everywhere at eighty cadence, um, and I'm a, um, which is amazing for my for me because I'm a spinner. So I I would do a create a not average one hundred and fifteen cadence. <laughs> I, I look like I look like I'm on junior gears. Um, so coming to Andorra, I actually can get old man strength going up the climbs, which is nice um but i do have to do that yeah the the cadence work to make sure i don't lose the zappiness i guess and i actually the reason why i first tapped into this was i when i first came up here in 2019 i rode with rowan dennis and he was talking about i was just asking about his training and he's like what do you do up here in andorra that's different to what you do somewhere else and then he mentioned this that uh yeah the climbs are amazing but uh they can also work against you um obviously bike racing is so fast so use the downhills uh as a stimulus too um which also means you have to respect the uphills and yeah um vice versa
1: what's your go-to cadence now on on a flat course flat road
0: uh more or less 100. um still pretty high Yeah. yeah
1: I want to keep asking about um, altitude because it's it's so different for how everyone responds uh, physiologically. So you're living at 2,000 meters. Um, how high are some of the climbs that you're getting to um, and what adjustments do you need to make in terms of how your body can respond because it's so easy to push it too far, as you said, and you just won't be able to recover? Um, and can you give us some examples of depending on how high you're getting um yeah what zone you're trying to stick to and that must be tough to decide because in a race you can't choose to back off (laughs) just because you're getting higher altitude the race is the race so talk us through that process for you
0: it does get complicated when you're living at 2,000 meters and yeah when you're accumulating the amount of stress that you can accumulate up here um yeah it can definitely be used to your advantage but it can also really undo your training and it can undo your season if you're not careful um so yeah, here in andorra um I'm, I'm, as i said i'm living at 2000 meters i can go i can turn left outside my apartment and go down to spain which is more or less at 600 meters so i can do the live high train low um, which i'm sure many people are familiar with um now i can go right and keep going up to 2500 meters um which then takes me down into france um and again uh the way i feel turning right is very different to how i feel if i do a session going turning left from my apartment and so it's just important for me to understand uh, the stresses of both um and yeah like for example uh if i'm training here in the summer and i've got a race coming up that's at sea level that's going to be really hot um so for example a tour of poland in 2020 i was going down to spain down to 600 meters not because of the sea level but also because it was hot so i still needed to do that heat stimulus to make sure that i could cope with the heat at the race because if i was doing all my training up here at 2000 meters i wouldn't be heat adapted Um, so and then also at sea level you can do the well 600 meters in spain you can do the the intensity that's required uh, for the race um yeah i think that answers that Kind of.
1: I was gonna say, yeah, know, it definitely does. Um, it's it's uh, just super fascinating to hear, um, yeah, the the different responses that people have, and um, heat and altitude are still things that aren't. There's the, the science behind them isn't concrete. It's just still so much figuring out uh, what people respond to. Um, have you, especially in the Juro, did you find that uh, you were altitude altitude adapted then um, with the work you were doing? Do you think you're way more altitude adapted now after a few more years under your belt? Where do you think you sit?
0: Yeah, I was definitely well acclimatized to the altitude. I noticed in the Duro does um, a few climbs where we got over twenty five hundred meters, and I really noticed that I uh, people would often. It's a similar uh, feeling to bonking. If you're not acclimatized to the altitude, you, it's 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 bizarre. It's a bizarre feeling. You get lightheaded. Very 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 similar to bonking, um, and I wouldn't get that. Um, and I would often feel yeah quite fit uh, for example when we we're going out with Stelvio there were guys we obviously you climb from I think it's 700 meters to 2800 meters which is the longest climb so I've rapid. ever done yeah and yeah between as soon as you get over to, as soon as you get over 2200 meters a lot of guys really do feel it um and you know, like uh, it's weird to see professional cyclists and some of the best climbers in the world they can't even do 220 watts um they're just trying to get up to the top of the climb to have a hot tea (laughs) um yeah but it's it is interesting with so many professional cyclists living in andorra uh Some cyclists will live up high like me and some high cyclists will live down lower at a thousand meters because they just don't respond well to the altitude. It's just not a stimulus that they react well to. So uh, whilst uh, yeah, some athletes might see it as like an absolute game changer, some athletes don't go anywhere near it. Um, So it is interesting to see just the different responses
1: we could keep asking you questions about your training uh, forever and we will get back to it because we were very <laughs> interested in what you're doing now. Um, but a key part yeah. of your story is um, kind of getting towards the end of your contract with AF. So you spent over three years with them, but in your final year you had two horrific crashes, which put you out for a lot of the season um, and your contract didn't get renewed. And that's the situation you find yourself in now, which is uh, you're just really putting yourself out there and training your ass off and putting your hand out to get a World Tour contract again. But can you talk us through that part of the story and, and what happened there and do you do you place a lot of blame on the crashes not giving you the opportunity to train and race like you would or or how did that unfold
0: yeah obviously it's a massive uh, it was a massive disappointment not to have my contract renewed at ef at the end of my three-year contract um and yeah the two crashes on my contract here certainly did not help um, and when that happens you have a pretty uh small results page on your contract year which also means that it's difficult to negotiate a contract with another team and then if other teams see that uh voters isn't uh yeah isn't renewing my contract then that's an auto auto filtering process for them that they're like well okay we'll just we'll just look at the the 20 other johnnies that uh are coming through instead um so that's just the reality of professional sport if if uh for example i, I was on a good contract at EF uh and my winning the tour of flanders maybe i've said this before on a podcast and in a video that maybe he had very high expectations of me um and maybe i didn't reach, reach those expectations and so as a result uh as a product i didn't get he didn't get the money's worth out of me um so as a result he just moves on so i understand this um and yeah it's a savage industry to be a part of um it's a hard job to get a hard job to keep and and as i'm learning now it's even harder job to get back um and yeah now i'm in a situation where last year i was with team Bridgelane, um where i was able to do a good aussie summer um which basically i was hoping that i'd have Yeah, a good Nationals, a good uh, Santos Festival Cycling, which was like the two in and under last year, and hopefully i get my job back. Um, And I really thought that I had done enough to maybe get that contract at a a pro team, but I just fell short. Um, And then I was in a similar situation again this year. The Nationals hoping to win the Aussie jersey and uh, resolve my employment issues and didn't quite work out. And I'm still... I've come back to Europe I've been training and I'm just hoping that a spot opens up with teams I've spoken to um, yeah so I think I've shown over the last year and a half that uh, I'm actually getting physically stronger um, and the opportunity to chase goals as an athlete in the world tour ranks is, is still there so I'm, I'm still super passionate about chasing that and yeah, I still got the support, and I've still got a bit of cash to to see it out for another few months. And uh, whether or not I'm a professional again uh, in the pro ranks, um, or maybe I'm coming back to Melbourne in a year, I'm not sure. But I know that I'm doing everything I can. Well, let's
2: just let's just take us through that, and uh, there's a lot to dig into there. Um, so, if if you're at the moment living in Europe and in, in Andorra and training your ass off to, to be ready for whatever may come your way in the next week, the next month or the next six months, how mentally are you going about your daily routine? And this this is incredible to us to hear this story that, that your motivation is that high that no matter what's going to happen next, you are determined and doing everything in your power to – Enable yourself to be selected and be ready to go. So, how are you? How are you managing your program, based around you don't really know what race you're going to train for, but you just want to be as fit as you possibly can. Tell take us through this mindset.
0: Yeah, it's it's from the outside in. I, it's a really difficult situation um, mentally. Uh, obviously, I'm unemployed, waiting for a contract. might not never come um and i have to train like a professional with professional mentality which takes a lot of energy physically and mentally uh yeah and it's also like it's also a lot of time by yourself too um so you have to get comfortable in your own space you have to be really self-inspired is that word i don't know yeah like the, the motivation has to come from within yourself um so and yeah your self of belief has to be super high and it also just has to become natural Um, obviously with all this contract stress and the disappointment i guess from that side of things uh, i thought maybe it could result in a negative relationship with the bike and as a result putting my leg over the bike in the morning would become difficult and then i wouldn't enjoy bike riding and if that was becoming the situation, then I wouldn't be able to chase being a pro again because you just can't put back-to-back to, back to back 25, 30-hour weeks on the bike if, uh, if you're in a bad headspace. So, yeah, uh, I've managed to keep things really simple um, to appreciate just the current life that I still have and the opportunities that could still be possible. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, for example, I'm actually my own coach at the moment um i think my situation is quite complex and i have to really strip it back and just enjoy bike riding and enjoy riding where i am i mean for example a lot of people in melbourne would have on their bucket list to come and ride in Andorra and come and ride in the pyrenees and i'm just doing that day to day so i have to like have that perspective on things that what i'm doing is is not normal and it's actually an absolute privilege even though i'm unemployed and without a contract it's still an absolute pleasure to ride my bike here um and also to still be a a professional athlete and not have to go to the office is something that is uh yeah a privilege um obviously i can't do it forever um yeah uh at times will change things but um Yeah, as I said, I was my own coach, so I keep things really simple. So I just, uh, if I, I've I've stripped back a lot of the high intensity work and a lot of the structured work and just riding to cool places. So I can ride to front Remo from here. Um, I can ride with a few old teammates Um, and yeah, just enjoy bike riding for what it is. Um, And I naturally I naturally half-wheel myself, so <laughs> I can just ride, <laughs> which is actually really important because it ends up, it means that I'm not doing junk. and It means that I'm yeah. naturally just tapping into zone two work at altitude, which is yeah. Yeah. the main stimulus anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, my situation is quite unique, and I think mm. I look at the the professional peloton and everyone that was in my situation in November last year without a contract – There's not actually another rider that's doing what I'm doing. Um, Everyone else has uh, moved on, I guess. Um, But I I just look at the... And maybe that's a reflection of me coming in so late to the sport that I still have a lot of untapped motivation. Um, It would be a completely different story if I had been riding a bike since I was 12 and I wanted to do something different uh, to what I've been doing for the last 15 years. Um, but yeah, uh, to be honest, I've, yeah, I've had to ask, I've had to, as, as, uh, Lockie Morton was saying in, in the podcast that you guys did with him a few weeks ago, uh, I really had to ask why I was doing this. Um, because, uh, there's a few hard questions that you have to ask. Is it, is it like an identity thing? Am I doing this because uh it's what uh defines myself and it's kind of my thing like uh, I don't want to do anything else Uh, and if it is an identity thing that's not why you should be doing it um and so I've answered that one um are you doing it because you wanted to be a paid athlete again if if that's your sole reason then I think you couldn't put myself in the current situation and have that being the driving force uh I really just enjoy yeah uh Being a professional cyclist and also being a professional athlete, and then living where I am, um, it really motivates me uh, to get up in the morning, and what it's what
2: fuels the fire. So that's a great answer, and uh, I just love your attitude. And um, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But with an attitude like that and a mental toughness that you've got, you will prevail. You have you have determination, you have consistency on your side, and and you you have obvious talent because they wouldn't have picked you up in the first place. So they're the things that are that are in in your pocket, in in your side of the court that uh, that someone will um, hopefully see very soon. Um, but. Yeah, we really admire and, uh, think it's unbelievable what you're doing. Um, and, and the way you're talking as if it's a, you know, it, it's not a given. You're so grateful for it, which is one of the things that we're all about in our podcast is being grateful for everything that we have the opportunity to do. And so it's a real refreshing, um, thing to hear from from a person in your situation who could absolutely be bitter and twisted about the whole situation. You know, you said you had crashes and, and you couldn't perform, but you also had a whole year of COVID where you couldn't perform and no one could perform. So, you've had a three-year contract where pretty much you only were able to ride in that first year. So, I think the unfinished business that you're talking about is, you know, you really feel like you're still at the start of your career and and looking at guys who are in their early 30s, like a uh, Michael Matthews, who's you know 33, you've still got seven years of, of unbelievable, exciting bike riding ahead of you if if it works out that way. So, so it's a really great way of hearing uh, that question answered. And uh, yeah, we really congratulate you. And and you know. Things will change for you if you just keep that that determination and consistency. You things will turn around, and and no matter how, if it takes six months or six weeks, something will happen. I I'm I'm sure of it. So that leads me to the next question: Is what are the things you can do f- to enable you to get yourself in front of the the right people? Uh, like for example, every writer is
0: represented by an agent. So these agents are. Uh, the middle person between the athlete and the managers for negotiating contracts, so these guys are uh are really important uh, to provide contacts and to start conversations uh with managers uh with directors even with within with riders within world tour teams so yeah uh, like one thing I've learned about the the professional cycling space is that uh it's like this process of getting recruited is really uh informal and uh all you need to do is just reach out to people um and start conversations people people are aware of my situation and they and they if they are aware they understand the story and they respect my yeah uh, my commitment to the sport and they do give a chance to hear me out um but it is a really difficult situation to resolve because it's obviously the season's well and truly underway, and to add a rider onto a roster uh, is logistically difficult, financially not part of their budget. Um, and they would also have to give me a chance as opposed to giving a rider from their under 23 team a chance, which is their priority because that's the whole sponsorship model of the team. Um, so yeah, uh, as, as as I said, the, the communicating is key. So just giving updates to world tour managers and pro tour managers of my situation, of my training, talking to the coaches within the team. Um, so well, from the numbers perspective, I've spoken to about 16 teams who have all had conversations with me over the last year and a half. Um, and these are big teams, they're world tour teams, pro tour teams um and my hopeful situation is that the conversations that i've kept ticking along eventually maybe a maybe a uh, a lot of riders get sick or uh yeah they start running a triple race program and they actually don't have enough riders to start and they do still have one or two spots available that they can open up um so in in the, the UCI has rules on different ranked teams having a maximum amount of riders. So in a world tour, you can have 30 riders. In the pro tour, you can have 26. Um, so the teams that don't have 26 or 30 riders, it means that they can all technically give me a chance. Uh, and the teams that have been interested uh, and they said that they'll come back to me if a chance changes uh, and they still have the spot available, then that's my opportunity to get my job back. Um mm-hmm. If you crunch the numbers on it, it's unlikely, but crazier things have happened, um, so yeah.
1: It's one of the things we say on the podcast all the time is, is it's as cliche as it is, anything can happen. And you watch you watch that many races throughout the year where just some of the most unlikely things happen, people that take chances get through, uh, it's just awesome. So we're, we're absolutely about that attitude. Um, does that mean mentally that uh, while you would hope that something happens, as soon as possible um, something lucky like that are you preparing for the fact that you might have to wait till November when contract talks happen again for everyone um, is that your goal to try and stick it out until then
0: yeah it, it becomes a really again difficult situation because uh, contracts more or less by the Tour de France is time to get uh, dialed in um, yeah. and if I if I haven't been able to find a contract by then as someone that hasn't been racing, I, my chances of getting a contract gets less. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm essentially out of the game for too long and that's that. Um, so that's my time frame, and, and I'm okay with that and there's mm-hmm. nothing I can do about that. Um, so my chance to get a contract is over the next three or four months. Um, and the only thing I need to do is again, communicate with the managers that have shown interest. Um, and just stay fit. That's the only noise that I need to deal with. Everything else is uh, is irrelevant. So,
2: yeah. How how are you going to go uh, with keeping your race fitness going? Um, is there some local stuff uh, that you, in the meantime that you can keep uh, keep sort of uh, turning up to and 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 uh, getting some of that race? You know that in case something does happen, that you will be ready to go and also. Maybe someone sees that you've done a KOM that's, you know, like, for example, the, the Zwift riders who come out of out of uh, Zwift and get a pro contact because they've done 7.5 watts per kilo that actually is real um, and, and no one can ignore it. Is there something like that that you can put yourself in front of people?
1: And you just want to race a local race in Barcelona, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean there's still racing opportunity here in catalonia
0: so uh it's pretty similar to the national road series um so in the national road series uh an individual can enter for example and it's it's the same here so i actually did a race last weekend against 170 guys there was 17 teams um, and it was 110k race uh just uh, around near Barcelona and near a town called Saboday and yeah there's there's actually development teams of world tour teams there. Um, so yeah I beat some of their boys. I came third actually. Oh,
1: third sorry yep yeah
0: um I didn't I didn't win it. I would have been a, yes. lot, a lot louder on social media if I had <laughs> won it.
1: I saw the photo <laughs> on social media, yeah. Yeah. On the podium.
0: I was wearing a two thousand and sixteen Cannondale Dravack skin suit. Um, <laughs> unreal and yeah so there are racing opportunities that i can tap into every now and then because i also have to do that because i can't just do a three and a half month training block at altitude like you need to as an athlete you need to feed the 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 competition like yeah like it's i like to yeah to go fast and to get that adrenaline of racing that i kind of trained for um so that's something that I can do in the meantime there's more or less one every four night, so um yeah and it only cost 12 euro which is ridiculous for closed roads and everything so yeah yeah um, that's brilliant
2: yeah yeah um,
1: answers are truly remarkable um giving an insight into where you're at at the moment and this is kind of so much to tap into mentally i guess it must be Equally frustrating to be so close to getting a contract, having you know banging on the door and having these conversations, especially when, as you said, you you probably ticked every box possible early 2022, coming second at the Nationals. I mean, winning would have been the only better thing you could do, but um, your performances over that summer were um, as good as you could have hoped. So while that's frustrating, it must give you hope for these last few months um, that you are right there and just need something to tip you over the edge.
0: Yeah, exactly. And... It's really difficult to gauge how close I am to a contract because it really does just take one conversation within a team that I'm completely unaware of at a Tuesday meeting. And then all of a sudden they call me up and I could be racing that next week. Um, And I'm on on whereabouts, which is like the anti-doping program. Um, And so I'm actually, all they need to do is to give me a kit and a bike and I'm ready to go. so I've even paid for my international UCI license. I've got all the insurance ready to be paid. Uh, so I've really got all everything that I need to do, uh, and the only thing I need to do is get that get that damn phone call. Um, yeah.
2: Now Simon Clark was in a similar position um, uh, a year ago. Yeah. And have you had an opportunity to reach out to him and and just have a discussion? you know him well?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, I know him really well. Obviously, he's a former teammate, and he also lives here in Andorra. And now, obviously, we have another uh, similarity in being out of a job for a small period of time. Um, And, yeah, after the Nationals and as I was traveling to Europe, I actually sent Simon a message just asking for him to, like, criticize my current situation to to see if I'm doing the right things um Simon is more than happy to provide some pretty blunt reviews and uh which is awesome that's what you need um like in my situation everyone says like is positive positively supporting me uh but no one's actually looking at me critically and saying you should actually be doing this and Simon uh provided an answer on things and gave me a bit of insight as to what I should do in a few months and then in a few months um but it was more or less a pretty, uh, he, he said that my approach was the correct way of doing things. And it's just, you you just have to come to Europe, be ready, stay fit, uh, stay fit. Uh, and I mean, it's all very easy to say that it's very complicated to do that. Um, but yeah, as I mean, Simon was without a job and I was riding with him in the Danganongs and in December, and he was talking about how he was going to have to finish his career he was going to have to get rid of his place in Andorra and all these things. And, you know, six months, seven months later, he's winning a stage of the Tour de France. It's, it's one of the best, it's one of the best Australian sporting stories that isn't widely known to be honest. Um, yeah. It's crazy.
1: We said the exact same thing when after that stage, we posted about it just saying that was one of the best Aussie wins you'll ever see. Um, It was just the, the story and emotion behind it was incredible and one of the things that's so clear in your answers is, uh, one, uh, just a lack of ego. It takes a lot of guts to be super open about your position. Cause as you've said, you know, you're unemployed. You're, you're, you've only got a few months that you can make this work. Um, you have to be really open about it, which is really fucking tough. Like you have to, you know, be putting yourself on podcasts like this to try and get your name out there. And you're not saying, woe is me. You're not complaining. You're not, you know, putting any blame on EF about not getting a contract. You just said, that's, that's the way the game goes. You are getting a lot of support from back home. You know, there are media sites doing articles about you, really talking you up. Um, I know you've got a lot of support from other writers. You are looking for some uh, criticism, for example, like you just said from Simon Clark about where to improve. How are you balancing that mentally, um, knowing that you've got a lot of support behind you, but knowing that, you know, the situation isn't changing, waking up every day, forcing yourself to still train? Um, how are you balancing all that?
0: Yeah, it's a really challenging situation. But the way I look at it is, if i want to find a solution to being a professional cyclist again that this is what i have this is the wave that i have to ride for a bit um and uh the stress of this situation uh is something that i have to put up with in order to get my job back and if i can't get my job back i know that i'll be a better person for it and whatever i end up doing later in life beyond cycling or whether i'm an athlete again in in another space i don't know but i know that whatever i end up doing after this or if i end up keep doing this that i will be yeah way better off for it um, in so many regards so um yeah to almost be in this situation is actually a non-issue because i know that i'm going to benefit regardless as to whether i find a solution or not
2: what a great attitude and uh, a lot of people can take a lot of um, uh, lessons from what you're saying and we don't appreciate what we've got until we've lost it. And and you can say that about so many situations. If someone's injured, they just realize how passionate they are about the sport that they love doing, whether it's playing soccer or football or tennis or riding your bike. The minute it's taken away from you, you suddenly realize how much it means to you and and I hear that loud and clear you you definitely have a passion and love for your chosen sport T- tell us about that and how how that's keeping you going
0: yeah i mean obviously this job it it kind of fell into my lap initially like it just it just happened and then all of a sudden i was living in europe and i didn't have the appreciation for what i had i didn't truly understand yeah the situation i was in and I think actually with COVID uh, and with the financial stresses on the sport and even within the team that I realised that this opportunity is very fragile and it's, uh, yeah, it's a situation that uh, won't last forever. Um, So you have to appreciate when you have it. Um, Yeah. So so what was the main crux of the question?
2: Yeah, it's really... It's really how are you coping with the fact that, you know, it could be the end and, and yet you're, you're so appreciative of the opportunities you've already had. And, and the message to people is, you know, just understand how lucky you are for the position you're in because it can be taken away from you at any given time.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, as you said, like, uh, at the end of my EF contract when it wasn't renewed, um, yeah obviously when it's taken away from you you really appreciate yeah what you had i guess um and yeah i mean that's when you just have to ask when it's taken away from you do you still want to do it and is it your passion and and it is my Mm. passion um and i think it makes me a better person too it's what yeah gets me up in the morning um and I think I can inspire other people too. Um, and yeah, I'm lucky to have the support of a lot of people that enables me to to keep chipping away and keep, uh, yeah, see if this if if this career can keep on ticking along.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that you are off here we spoke about the lucky morton podcast but um that was one of our favorite conversations we've ever had um and your ethos and your attitude about bike riding is so similar and obviously you were telling us you've spent a bit of time with him and he's a bit of an, he's an inspiration to a lot of people uh, and he's an inspiration to you i'm sure um and is that you know you spoke before about being able to get up in the morning and put your leg over your bike uh, is it that main love for the sport that is enables you to keep doing that and to to understand that like you said you're getting up and you're getting to ride around places people dream of um you're thinking similar to Lockie in that way
0: yeah i mean Lockie's podcast was the one you did with Lockie a few weeks ago was uh quite incredible actually um and yeah you guys really asked the right questions and he's also someone that can express his thoughts incredibly well um Yeah, I think there's something about being a bike rider that where you have so much time to yourself, uh, Mm, and you have so much so much time to think about your situation, to think about the possibilities, to think about what you could be doing differently, or like, could I be doing something different with my life that will give as much satisfaction? Um, And that's where, like, he was saying that, like, he was reflecting a lot on. yeah, why he was a bike rider and, uh, yeah, being up here in the mountains in Andorra training by myself and really having a lot of time to myself, a lot of people might think, oh, that's uh, like in this situation when you want to be around heaps of people and be busy and these things, but actually you need to keep it simple uh, and, yeah, have that time to think about, uh, yeah, what what you want to be doing with your life when
2: you get to Crossroads. I can imagine that once you get your contract back, the racing will be easy compared to what <laughs> you've been doing in the last period. And that will be an amazing experience in itself, I th- I feel. <laughs> what are your thoughts about that?
0: I have definitely thought about the fact of, yeah, getting back on the start <laughs> line. Um, yeah, it, it would be like uh, so satisfying um my sense of appreciation and also my sense of like you know how some athletes have like the i don't know what it's called like the animal in them like the dog like the just that yeah, that grit yeah. that grit um
1: yeah That white line fever. Like,
0: yeah exactly i think i would have it in buckets compared to what i had before um and mm-hmm. that would be if i bring that across into some of the hardest bike racing in the world then
2: yeah the resilience you're building the resilience you're building in your your personality and your character will will be an unbelievable advantage come racing that's basically what i'm trying to say the racing will not be any harder than them you know the the, the roadblocks are being put in front of you right now you know you're still analytically working your way around them which is incredibly admirable and then come racing there'll be lots of challenges but they won't be nearly as hard as what you're doing now so i I just really take my hat off to you and, and we're super impressed with uh with with your resilience and uh the way you're going about it and um you know i'm a firm believer that you will prevail i said that earlier but uh you know the more you tell us the, the more I'm just desperate that uh, someone out there listening uh, can just, you know, take, take uh, a little bit of a, it's not even a risk, you know, get you on board and see what happens. And uh, I just can't wait for that moment. Um, I
1: couldn't agree with dad's sentiments more. And I know that um, words of affirmation and, and us pumping you up doesn't you know, mean mean much when you just want a contract, you know, everyone telling you how good a job you're doing. You just, you just want a contract is the main thing. And we really grilled you about this situation at the moment. Um, which is, is tough to talk about. And like I said, it's so gutsy of you to um, be sharing exactly what you're going through. So we want to talk about you as an actual rider and where you're at now. And the numbers that you're putting out now are unbelievable. Obviously, the best thing you could do is is race results, which you've tried to do in, in every situation possible, the local races, nationals this year. Um, but let's talk about your actual ability as a rider right now. And uh, physiologically, um, some of your power numbers that you were speaking about uh, on video last week, can you take us through um, some kind of something the numbers you're hitting at the moment and what are you, are you trying to improve? Them is that your goal? If, can you do you know twenty minute tests every every so often to try and show teams that you're yeah, um, improving those numbers, improving those power numbers? What's What's your goal around them? But so sorry, two part question. Start with kind of going through your current ability and power numbers, and then what you're trying to do with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at my power data uh, throughout the last yeah four years, um, my my raw power, so like the power PBs itself, haven't actually gone up too much uh, from when I was uh, as a domestic rider. But my, I mean, uh, this is quite common within uh, domestic riders versus world tour riders. Is that it's their resistance fatigue that is exceptional, and that's what really is a different di- differential between, yeah. Uh, for example, a Aussie amateur at a high level in the NRS versus a world tour rider um so that's something that has really improved on my end is just my ability to produce for example 95% of my 20 minute power pv after 3500 kJ's um so yeah and this can be easily shown within training peaks which is the platform that i use anyway um and yeah and yeah, world tour teams see this, and whenever a world tour uh, coach or a pro tour coach looks at my stuff, they they are they always give the tick of approval. Um, and there was actually one one team uh, that said my numbers weren't good enough, but I perhaps showed that otherwise against them at the nationals. And there was three riders <laughs> of that team at nationals, so yeah. Anyway, won't get into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: that's, i like that you said that yeah um but yeah
0: from from a power perspective uh it's yeah i mean obviously i have good numbers and then it's obviously all relative to your weight too and i'm quite a light guy so that's to my favor um and yeah what was the second part of the question
1: are you aiming to improve that now i mean you kind of answered it in saying that the goal is to show yeah. that um that resistance to fatigue, but what are you kind of aiming for now?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, now I just have to, every now and then when I go down, train lower down at sea level, I'll do some power testing just to reiterate the fact that if a coach is still looking at my stuff that I can uh, very obviously show that I'm physically fit and that I'm doing the power numbers required for a bike race.
2: It's, uh, it's kind of a ironic situation when you first got your contract, how raw you were and you probably didn't have that endurance ability to absorb such huge loads that, that now you're, you're… And also, you didn't have the race craft, um, the technical skills. They're all things you have now. You, you still have the same power or better power, raw power than you did when you first got the contract. You now are a, a way better skillful tactician. You, you actually can technically climb and descend as well as any world tour rider. You've got all these things that, that should seemingly get you the contract you, you need, yet because it was that one event that, that turned everything, is there, is there something, and I know the, the Australian road title was one of those events that you, that you were aiming to get that jersey for and probably would have been a bit of a game changer for you. Is there something you could have, you can do in the future that's, that's imminent, that can get you an opportunity to show how good you are um, in, a, in a race situation. Um, we know we've talked about the communication and the relationship building, which is, which is unbelievably important. But is there one standout thing? And I know it's no good talking backwards about what happened in January. Your performance was outstanding. You are at the front of the race. You were possibly the best rider and the fittest rider there, but didn't quite get the finish that you wanted is yeah take us through all that thought process and how is there anything you can do on the track that can that put you in front of people again
0: yeah i've been thinking about this and uh it's it's difficult to to provide an answer to this i mean i mean the only thing that i can do is like i don't have access to the big races because i'm not a contracted rider um and yeah, I can do all the power testing and all the numbers that reiterate the power that I've already done, which is not the question here. Um, so I think uh, I just need to, if I get a chance to do these local Spanish races and try and win one of those, and that's something. And that's about the the only noise that I can create right now. Um, uh, yeah, there's, I don't think... There's a question as to whether I'm, I think if, if yeah, within the world tour managers and the pro tour managers, the, there's not a question as to whether I'm good enough. Uh, it's just whether the opportunity is there and if they're willing to give that to me or to someone else. Um, is that, so, yeah.
1: Does that make it easier mentally knowing that you are good enough and give you confidence But just waiting for the opportunity is frustrating, but at least you have the confidence that you, you're good enough? It, it,
0: is, it is frustrating because, uh i'm kind of stuck in limbo in a way uh in the australian summer i had that australian nationals to chase i had something tangible to work towards and and as you saw on the nationals i was stupidly aggressive uh i mean in the in, in the podcast with lucas hamilton lucas was talking about how he regrets being aggressive in the race He must look at my rep bike race and think, Jimmy was so stupid that day, tactically. But I just had to show show my legs that day and I knew I had amazing legs and I could have um sat in that second group all day and then finished seventh, but no one would be talking about me because I was never relevant in the bike race. Um anyway, that's a different uh topic. But um it is frustrating not to have yeah, like a tangible race where I know that uh you know there will be some pro teams at this race that i can do where i will beat their riders and a manager will be watching um so from it is yeah i am as i said stuck in limbo but i just have to keep doing the controllables and then hoping that uh yeah uh a manager comes in contact again with with at the right time uh and there is an opportunity there um and i mean if you crunch the numbers it's unlikely um but there's actually nothing else i can do
1: do you want to ask one more question on, on the nationals dad and i were talking about it um yeah and whether yeah i mean i know you said you don't regret the way you raced um and you re then that you want to sh- show yourself at the front um but uh in hindsight if you you know you, you are very strong would you have tried to back yourself in and um, to think that if you had stayed in the um, second group in the main bunch and the race came back together um you could have given yourself better than a top seven finish um against some of the strongest guys you know in the country in the world um yeah was was anything you would have done differently thinking from that perspective
0: yeah i mean it's all hindsight but uh yeah. i knew on that day like i was really fit uh um and i'd done a lot of training a lot of heat work and i knew at that bike race that i could use a lot of bullets and still be at the front of the race for that final lap and i could take all the chances during the race to be at the front of the race and maybe that was one of the moves um like there was a lot of discussion about uh the world tour guys being super experienced and not showing their their legs until the last few laps and i think a lot of that is tactical now but also they didn't have a choice they were still early in the preseason preparations, and they only had two bullets they could fire, whereas I had ten um, so from that perspective, um, my race was quite different to theirs um if i had have known if I had have known uh, that Green Edge were gonna go so all in for bling, I would have just stayed with bling um I thought that they would maybe, uh, put a few more riders up the road or into moves, as opposed to riding the front and bringing bling to the front of the race. Um, and that's when I could run my chance of racing with those guys that go up the road and then try and beat them. That was my chance. That was my theory anyway. And it didn't pan out like that. Um, and it would have been nice to be in that front group of five or four in the end coming to the finish, but, uh, I just, Yeah. yeah faded in through the uni on the last night
1: everything's hindsight right did yep. you have another question on that dad
2: no I, I, that explains it to me now and i really like that answer and um i actually i actually agree with you um i think i think what you did was the right tactical move because that could have paid off in most bike races that probably would have played off except you had one team determined to make it the complete opposite and they had the numbers so um, so I think I think your tactics were were absolutely fantastic and spot on and, and, in, and in any other situation it probably would have panned out in your favor um yeah so look we, we, we we're super appreciative of, of your time I don't know, George, if you've got um I'm sorry to take so much of your time um you probably need to get out and train but um I rest out. <laughs> <laughs> rest day exactly killing time is uh yeah, exactly right. it's all about inefficiency
0: yep. on a rest day when i'm not working still so <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah true i wanted to finish one more question on the nationals i mean you definitely made some noise in the australian scene because everyone saw how that race unfolded did you uh, did it result in any any um any kind of conversation that you saw um from worldwide from other teams did you um did your um agent um, Baden-Cook have any communication with anyone after the race um, or nothing direct?
0: Yeah, that was it was looking really good at one point. Um, yeah, it was, again, frustrating because I had six world tour teams who were all in touch with with Baden um, and, yeah, they would have a look at my stuff. Uh, the coaches would give the tick of approval and then that would go to the management and then the manager would make a decision uh, and then, for whatever reason, uh, whether it was a timing thing, uh, whether they just weren't interested in the end, like it only takes one person to say a firm no within the the five of the management, and then that's that. Um, so yeah, there were uh, there were a few bites, and I was keeping my fingers crossed that I'd be getting on a f- flight. Yeah, after the yeah after the Australian summer, that I would find myself a job. Um, and it just didn't form out the way I wanted it to. So.
1: so that probably shows that you rode the right way then, but the fact that you had so many conversations after that, that probably affirms, um, how well you raced right.
0: Yeah. Um, and the good thing about this year's nationals is that there were a lot of world-class bike riders, um, la- last year's nationals, um, when I came second, uh, the main criticism, uh, from, and also from the. Santos Festival of Cycling is that European managers would question the credibility of the race from just because there weren't that many world tour guys there. Uh, whereas this this year there were um almost all the Australian pros went back for the nationals. So yeah. They couldn't discuss this year.
1: Exactly, it was one of the stacked races we've had in a while. Uh, yes. Well, we'll finish off here. I did. Uh, final, what question I want to ask is again. We've kind of really hammered you about your situation right now, and and um, it's pretty uh, good of you to you know, talk so openly about um, all the struggles of it, which is really tough. Do you find it um, hard to talk about? Do you find it um, just something that you have to do because it wasn't something you signed up for as a professional athlete to have to also be good at fighting for your job. Um, you just want to be able to get on the bike and train. How do you see this kind of situation we're at now?
0: Yeah. Uh, as you were saying before, a lot of people wouldn't be so open about it because um, like uh, a lot of people wouldn't share the f- when they're unemployed, for example. You know? Um, yeah. So, if, you just have to put your ego away um, and you have to understand that uh, Talking about your situation is gonna create a bit of noise and people talking and it's a small world. Um and I think I'm able to communicate my feelings and my situation well enough that yeah, I don't sound like I'm singing a sob story. Um and also another thing that's important that like uh I think uh athletes are inspirational when they do good performances, but they're also Perhaps even more inspirational when shit hits a fan. Um and I think uh more to be honest, I think I'm uh my story is better now than if I had a won a duro stage, for example. Like it obviously <laughs> it's very different, but yeah, um I think a lot of people can take away from it. And um I'm not doing much else for anyone at the moment. I'm not really doing good for anyone at the moment. So if I can at least share my situation and provide some inspiration and that's something that's that's good and then obviously as i said it, it'll create people talking about me and uh yeah uh, it's 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 good so
2: no i i yeah i just i would just really appreciate it mate and uh I, I, we just wish you luck with uh and we can't wait to see what happens next and, and there's going to be a good end to this story. I'm, I feel it. And I've had a lot of years under my belt to see things and you just, you know, no one deserves anything in this world. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you keep putting yourself out there, you keep being consistent and you, you've, you know, you're showing vulnerability, you're showing that, you, that you're, you know, a team member and you're willing to do whatever it takes to, to, to do the passion that, that you want so much as to ride your bike, uh, and show, show the talents you have. Um, I think you will prevail. So, uh, yeah, I just want to, I just want to say congratulations, mate. And no matter what happens, um, you are an inspiration to a lot of people who are listening and, and if, if we can be half as resilient as you are, we'll have some decent, uh, experiences in our life. So we really thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and sharing your story. And we hope the story has a really good ending and, uh, Look forward to uh following your your journey and uh, if there's any way we can help uh you know don't hesitate to yell out because we're we're right behind you
0: no cheers, yeah, thanks for yeah providing conversation and yeah cheers for being able to share yeah my situation with on your platform. You guys do a really neat job of um sharing insight into yeah athletes' lives on and off the the field so yeah. Cheers.
1: Really appreciate it. And I, yeah, I'll re- reiterate what dad said. Uh, and for the listeners, I know that everyone will love it. Um, love this podcast, love this episode specifically. Um, but I will say, you know, off air, um, you were really congruent. And um, in saying that it's it's not about you having a sob story or anything, you didn't say these words, but this is what um, we gathered from you directly is that, yeah, you're not you're not trying to shout a sob story or anything. This, this is the real, realistic situation of where you're at. Um, we reached out to you and said, you know, we'd love to, um, for you to tell your story. You're super open about it. Um, and so you never know who's listening, but if there's any anyone listening that uh, could help in any way, um, get this man a contract because uh, this story is pretty epic and we really hope it has a good ending. So once again, Jimmy, thank you very much for joining us. And to everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening to another one. And we'll see you on the next one.